right, Leviticus chapter 23, you guys, I'm going to read the first two verses. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. How many of you guys, uh, just by show of hands quickly, have ever studied through the feasts before? Just real quick. Like, so not too many of you guys. Um, we are in a very remarkable chapter in the Bible, not just in Leviticus, but I think this is just a remarkable uh, chapter in the entire Bible. And what we're going to be dealing with in this chapter, and I'm going to move pretty quickly here, so I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the intro here, but we're going to be looking at the, the seven, depending on how you count them, and we'll talk about that, the seven feasts that the Lord gave to the nation Israel. And these feasts were basically religious like gatherings for the most part. Um, some of them were commemorative in nature, remembering something. They all had some kind of special symbolism. We'll talk about that. And they all revolved around kind of the agricultural seasons of the year. And so these seven times, in fact, um, they're called feasts. If you look there in verses 1 and 2, you see the word feasts. Um, the word feast there, don't let that throw you. That has less to do with food and more to do with the idea of an appointed time. That's actually what it means, an appointed time. And then the other phrase you come across is a holy convocation. Anybody have something different than holy convocation? Holy assembly, that's what it is. It's a calling together. So these were appointed times where God was calling his people together to Jerusalem for these, uh, these special events that were through the year that were connected to um, their agricultural seasons, the, the, the spring and in the fall. And there's a cluster of them in the spring, and then there's a cluster of them in the fall. Now you might say, well, what is so remarkable about that? Well, what's so remarkable about this, this um, feast calendar, this religious calendar for Israel, is that it's actually also a calendar of God, listen, a calendar of God's redemptive plan for man. This calendar, these feasts are highly typical, meaning that they picture, they foreshadow God's redemptive plan for man, starting with the cross all the way through the second coming and the millennial reign of Christ. And I, guys, as I've been looking at this chapter this week, it's, it's just a mind blower how um, concise and beautiful and accurate and wonderful this thing is. And I'm kind of getting excited about it. I hope you do as we go through it. Um, yesterday, I think it was, Pastor Steve said, so... How many weeks are you planning on taking for chapter 23? Because, listen, this chapter deserves at least a seven or eight week series, so we're going to do it all tonight. <laughs> Here's the thing. Instead of me delving into all the nooks and crannies of all of the feasts that have already previously been dealt with and talked about for the most part, I want to do more a different kind of approach, more of a 30,000-foot flyover, because I think there's a reason why God lumps them all together in one unit. It's kind of the difference between, you know, pausing a song and thinking about the lyrics and writing down some thoughts, and that's good, but we just want to, in a sense, play the whole song and see it in its entirety and take in its beauty uh, tonight. Does that make sense? 
sense? So we're just going to go straight ahead. But what I want you to keep in mind is this, this um, feast calendar is, that's seasonal with their agricultural life is also a calendar, if you would, of God's redemptive plan for us. Got that? So are you ready? You might want to get a pen and a paper because I'll probably make a lot of references that you're maybe not, won't have time to double check or whatever, and you may want to um, look them up later. So let's just start. After all that talk about feasts and how important they are, he actually starts with something that's not a feast. He actually starts with a reminder of the Sabbath. Look at verse 3. He says, six days um, shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation, and you shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. Again, this is not the first time he's brought up the Sabbath. Uh, The Sabbath, of course, was the seventh day of the week, Saturday. And if you want to go back to Exodus 20, when he talks about the Sabbath and the law, he, he, he bases it on basically creation. God worked six days and he rested on the seventh. And he basically says, you're going to take that seventh day, Saturday, for the Jewish people and you are going to rest. That will be a day of rest. You're not to violate that. Um, again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that. Um, I just want to say this. You know, Sunday is not the Christian Sabbath. Do you guys understand that? Sunday is like not the new Sabbath. Like we do Sabbath, we just do it on Sunday. The reality is, is that Jesus Christ fulfilled the Sabbath. Colossians 2, 16 and 17, where Paul says, don't let men judge you in relation to feasts and holidays and Sabbath, which are the shadow of things, but Christ is the substance. And that's an important verse because all of these feasts, all of these appointed times, and even the Sabbath, are all a shadow of the real substance, which is Christ. Amen? Here's what I mean by that. Christ, the word Sabbath means rest. Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our rest. Amen? It's him. What do you mean he's our rest? We have, can cease from trying to work our way to God. It has been completed in Christ. He died. He raised from the dead. He sat down on the right hand of the Father. The work is completed. We find our solic rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen? And then also, too, you know, there's always Christians that get hung up on this. We have to keep the Sabbath. No, we don't. We're actually free completely, 100% from the law. The law, the Old Testament law, has no jurisdiction on our lives. We're not lawless. We have the new law of the spirit and of life. And this is what I will say about the Sabbath as a principle. It was there before the law, actually. And I do want to say this. I believe God's created us to have a day of rest. And whether it's Sunday or Saturday or whatever, as far as our physical bodies, I think you are foolish to not take one day. You're not super macho, awesome Christian guy. You're not super awesome Christian, you know, or work hard worker. You could be a hard worker, work seven days a week, and and absolutely blow yourself to smithereens. God says, stop it. Rest. Take a day. Get refreshed. Amen? So there's, again, more we can talk about all these. That was my short version of of mentioning that. He mentions the Sabbath. Now, the first feast he looks at is the Passover. Look at verses 4 and 5. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, 
the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the time of the appointed, uh, appointed for them, in the first month on the 14th day of the month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. Now pause there for a moment. This is fascinating to me because this is one of the most um, incredible and major feasts. It only gets two verses right here. If you want to get more detail, and there's plenty, you can go to Exodus chapter 12. But just let me remind you what the Passover was. The Passover was the commemoration of the means by which God rescued and delivered his people from Egypt. You remember when uh, the nation of Israel was trapped in Egypt under the harsh taskmaster of Pharaoh. Their cry went up to heaven. God raised up a man whose name was who? Moses, Moses, go to Pharaoh, tell Pharaoh to set my people free. Uh, Moses goes, Pharaoh declines. Pharaoh actually responds in the negative and makes things harder for them. And so God puts into play plague after plague after plague to try to break Pharaoh. And he just really hardens himself. And so the last plague was a plague of death to the firstborn. But here's what was unique about this plague. It was not just on the Egyptians. It was on Israel too. The firstborn on a given night, the firstborn of every household was going to die. The angel of death was going to come through and kill. Because basically he said, look, Pharaoh, God says Israel is my son. Let my son go or I'm going to take your son from you. And so with that promise of the, the angel of death coming, he gave a provision. The provision was a substitution. Don't forget that word, substitution, so important. He gives a substitution. He says, here's what you can do to save yourself from this coming judgment. You take a little lamb that is without spot, blemish, young, all the details in Exodus 12. You kill it. You take its blood and you put it in the basin by your front door. You splash some of the blood on the sides and you splash some of the blood on the cross beam. And that night when the angel of death came through and saw the blood, Exodus 12 says that the angel of death, what? passed over their house. They were saved by the substitutionary blood of a lamb. And when the morning came and Pharaoh and the rest of Egypt and everybody woke up and death was in every house, they kicked Israel out of Egypt from that point on. So you guys know the story, right? So this is a commemoration of that. They were to celebrate the Passover on the 14th of Nisan. Here's why it's significant for us, and, and it's, this is where it's so tempting just to take so much time, but we know this, guys, listen. That Passover lamb was fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Amen? Write it down. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, where Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb. We don't have to guess on the typology or what this symbolizes. He just tells us in, this, in the New Testament Jesus fulfilled the Passover lamb. Jesus at the, at the Last Supper, take, this is my body given for you. Take my blood, pour it out for you. Do you guys understand that Jesus died on the cross on Passover? Jesus was the one. Listen, Jesus was the substitutionary lamb to deliver us out of the bondage of sin. Amen? And if you or I or anybody takes the blood of Jesus, so to speak, and applies it to your life by faith. The angel of death, judgment, passes over you because not because you're innocent, not because you're a good person, but because somebody died in your place and the judgment's been paid for you. 
Amen? Christ is our Passover. He fulfills that beautifully. So whereas it was a commemoration, it was also an anticipation of what Jesus would do this Feast of Passover. Now, secondly, uh, the next feast is the the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, I mentioned earlier there's seven feasts, depending on how you divide them up. Some people combined these two because they're literally commemorating the same thing, and they're butted up right next to one another. Look at verse 6. It says, now on the 15th day, so that's the evening, because the days, a Jewish day started in the evening, the 15th day of that same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. For seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work, but you shall present a food offering to the Lord for seven days. On the seventh day it is a holy convocation. You shall do no ordinary work. So, connected to Passover was this idea of unleavened bread. Again, I, I'm going to, we're just kind of hitting the high points on this, but go back and read now Exodus 13, which talks about unleavened bread. You see, unleavened bread, what was that all about? Well, when God told Israel they were going to leave Egypt, they didn't have time to put leaven in the bread and wait for it to rise and all that. It happened now. It happened in haste. And so this idea of unleavened bread was to remind them of that quick exodus and how they had to get out of there. And so for a week, the, cele- the, the, the feast was celebrated by not allowing any leaven to be eaten for a week, which basically means no yeast in your bread, right? So, by the way, if you've ever been to Israel, when you're getting close to uh, Passover and you're in a hotel and you have some goodies that you maybe bought at the coffee shop, a scone or something like that, hide it. Because they will go through your hotel room, uh, um, housekeeping, and they will clean out any leaven that is anywhere in, you know, depending if it's like a kosher hotel or a non-kosher hotel. But um, I had to learn that the hard way, lost some goodies. So you got to hide them in your suitcase, Uh, a little travel pro tip there for you. Um, But here's the thing. So for that week, um, they were to not indulge in anything that had leaven. Here's the significance of that. Again, this is not one that's hard to understand because the New Testament reveals it to us. Same verse, actually, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, where it says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Jesus said stuff like this to his disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Um, undisputably, leaven is a type or a picture in the Bible of sin. Because you put a little bit of yeast in the dough and it permeates the entire thing and the whole thing, right? Right. So the idea is sin. Oh, it's just a little bit of sin. Uh, it doesn't work like that. It permeates. It infects the whole. That's why Paul in that 1 Corinthians 5 little side note, he's saying that person who won't repent and is knowingly living in rebelliousness and sin, unrepented sin, kick them out of the church until they're dealt with because a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. So here's where that gets real applicable. And again, I'm not delving as deep into this as we can and maybe should. I don't know. I'm just going to hit the high points. But here's what kind of dawned on me about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's connected to Passover, but comes after. Passover speaks of our forgiveness. Unleavened bread speaks of a removal of actual sin from our lives. And that just really blessed me this week because that's how it works. We, we come to Christ as we are, full of sin, and by his grace, he forgives us based on the substitutionary death of his son. We're redeemed, amen? And we apply his blood, so to speak, through faith. And then you know what begins to happen? 
in our lives, there's a removal of sin. We start to change from the inside out. Things that we thought were normal and okay in our life before, now that Christ is in our life, we're like, oh, I got to stop doing that. And I don't even want to do that anymore. We may still struggle, of course we do, with certain things, but our lives begin to get cleaned out of all that sin. And here's what I love. It's Passover, then unleavened bread. Here's what we do so often. We flip it. And we somehow think in our head, the process is clean our lives up, and then we can be forgiven. Here's the gospel. You're forgiven, and then he'll clean you up. Amen? I just love that. So connected to Passover, it's the removal, if you would, of the sin. I love that. Well, then let's look at the next uh, feast. Again, we're moving quickly through these. I might reserve the right to circle back to some of these in upcoming weeks. The Feast of First Fruits. Now, this is fascinating. Look at verse uh, 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you to reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave that sheaf before the Lord. So, listen to the key phrase here so that you may be accepted. And on that day, after the Sabbath, so that would be that Sunday after the Sabbath of Passover. And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an epaph of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord, a wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat uh, neither bread nor grain, uh, parched or fresh, until this same day. Um, until you have brought the offering of your God, it is a statute forever throughout your generations. And again, not going to go through all the ins and outs of it, but uh, basically this was in the spring signifying the beginning of the barley harvest. And what they would do is you go and you, before you take in your harvest, you cut some down and you wrap it up in a sheaf. You guys know what a sheaf is, right? Just like a bundle. And they were to bring that sheaf to the priest, and the priest would wave it before the Lord. And it was significant because you were basically committing the entire, you know, harvest to God. And you were saying, this is the first, and this is the best, and we give it to you. By the way, there's probably a great teaching in there. You know, throughout the Bible, we are always to bring our first and our best to God. The first of our money, the first of our time, the first of our energy, the best that we have to the Lord first. Anyway, that aside... He says, or they would say, we're waving this before you. It's the first and the best, and the harvest, there's more to come. And so that was the idea. So, but here's the thing that's interesting. Um, it says in first, or let me actually let me back that up a little bit. I, I noted this, but I want you to really get it. This feast overlaps with unleavened bread and happens on the Sunday after the Passover, or the day after the Passover, which is what? Sunday. And it's called the, 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 the Feast of First Fruits. And this is fascinating because Jesus actually rose from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. And what does it say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23? Oh, you don't remember? Let me read it to you. It says this, um, verse 22, uh, actually verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then all those at his, his coming. He's talking about the resurrection. Guys, again, here we have the New Testament interpreting the Old Testament. Christ fulfills the feast of first fruits because it speaks of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Christ raised from the dead on first fruits, and he is the first fruit. What does that mean? 
It means a number of things, and this is, again, worthy of a, a long sermon in and of itself, but let me suffice it to say this. Number one, because Jesus raised from the dead, we are accepted. What do you mean? Well, doesn't it say, like, they wave the sheaf before God so that they might be accepted? Listen, Jesus' resurrection assures us that we're accepted to the Father. Here's my point. Paul says it with a lot of words in 1 Corinthians 15. No resurrection, no proof that the crucifixion meant anything. Jesus said this, you want to know my authority? And he pins everything he taught and everything he did on one sign. And what was it? The resurrection. Guys, listen, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then we have no assurance that the cross took he was just another Jew who got crucified on a Roman cross along with tens of thousands of others. But you see, Jesus' death on the cross was significant. He was paying for our sin. How do I know? He raised three days later from the grave and proved that the cross was a sufficient sacrifice. Amen? So jot down this little theological note. Jot down Romans 4, verse 25. He was raised up for our... Mm. Mm-mm. Let me just re- let me just go there. I just had a brain freeze right there. Hold on for a second. Romans four. Did I say Romans four? Okay, thank you. Romans four twenty five. Oh, there it is. He was delivered up for our trespasses. That means he was put on the cross for our trespasses, but he was raised up resurrection for our justification. Amen. So, I mean, I know we know this, but think about it. No resurrection. No forgiveness. Paul says, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, you're still in your sin. But he did raise from the dead. So we're not in our sin. Amen? Not only is that important, but secondly, because Christ raised from the dead, it is assurance, again, 1 Corinthians 15, that you and I will raise from the dead. You know, this is a doctrine that doesn't get a lot of attention and traction uh, for some reason in, in, I think, our Western culture, whatever, but this is a huge concept and a huge thing throughout the Bible, starting way back in Daniel 12, that there is a resurrection unto life. This is not the end for us. Amen? Our, our physical bodies, now, again, it's, it's kind of compared to, a, like Paul says, a seed going into the ground. It goes in one way, as Pastor Steve taught on this not too long ago. It goes into the ground one way, but comes out something way better and way different. These bodies are going to go into the ground, but they're coming up completely different. We're going to have resurrection bodies, whatever exactly that means. But guys, that is a hope that we can hold on to as Christians. This is not the end. Amen? Now, there is, again, I'm tempted to delve off here, but listen, everybody gets resurrected. Everybody. 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 Some get resurrected to life, and some get resurrected to the second death. You and I who are believers in Christ, we will be resurrected unto life. But those who have rejected Christ and have died in a relationship apart from Him, Revelation 20 is clear. They'll also resurrect. And they'll stand before the great white throne judgment of God. The books will be opened. And if their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, at that point, You know, we always talk about going to hell. It's not really, if you want to be technical, it's not hell. It's actually the lake of fire for all of eternity. Conscious, awake, aware, and a resurrected body for all of eternity separated from God. And that's a heavy thought. But 
back to the positive side. Because Christ raised from the dead, you and I have the hope that we're raising from the dead too. Amen? Lastly, on that point, we'll move on because Christ is the fulfillment of the Feast of first fruits. Um, because Christ raised from the dead, um, our sins are forgiven, we're justified. We have the hope of resurrection, bodily resurrection as well. And thirdly, Romans 6, to just give you the reference, states that right now, Christian, we have resurrection life. Our old man was crucified with Christ. We've identified with Jesus in his death, but we've also identified with Jesus in his resurrection. That means we can live resurrection life right now. That means power over sin and victory in Christ. Amen? Again, these are things that we could go on and on about, but that's some of the high points I wanted to touch on. Okay, let's keep moving. The Feast of first fruits. Now look at the Feast of Weeks, verse 15. Um, this is also called uh, sometimes the, the Feast of um, Pentecost. We'll talk about it in a second. Let me just read it through for a second. Verse 15, you shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf, that is that wave offering, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh uh, Sabbath, then uh, shall present a grain offering of a new grain of new grain to the Lord, and you shall bring from your dwelling place two. Listen to this. This is the key phrase here: two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an epaph. They shall be of fine flour, and shall bake them. Listen to this with leaven, as the first fruits to the Lord. You shall present the bread with the bread seven lambs a year old without blemish. One bull a herd from the herd and two rams. And there shall be a burnt offering to the Lord with their grain offering, the drink offerings, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And you shall offer one male goat from, as a sin offering, two male lambs a year old um, as a sacrifice of a peace offering. And the priest shall wave them with the bread of the first fruits and wave the offering before the Lord with the two lambs. They shall be holy to the Lord for the priest. And you shall make a proclamation on that same day. You shall hold a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. It's a statute forever in all your dwelling places throughout all your generations. Verse 22. And when you reap your harvest of your land, you shall not reap the, the field right up to its edge. You shall gather the gleanings or gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. I want you just to make a kind of a, a little mental bookmark on verse 22 because I want to come back to that later. This next uh, feast called the Feast of Pentecost or weeks um, was 50 days. That's why it's called Pentecost. Penta means 50th. 50 days from that wave offering. Now here's the deal. Um, the Feast of Pentecost was basically uh, the summer celebration of the wheat harvest. Here's the main thing I want to take away from this. There's a lot of details there, but let me just kind of cut to the chase on the, the Feast of Pentecost. So you have Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits all clumped together. And then there's like this 50-day stretch, and it's kind of another kind of in-gathering time. Um, it's actually called, uh, I think there's actually another name for it. Let me find it, see if I have it in my notes. I don't have it in my notes. Anyways, but there was just another harvest that was coming in. But here's what's significant in the way that they celebrated it. Listen to this. They would bake two loaves of bread from the wheat with leaven. And they would wave them before the Lord. 
That was kind of the main thing that, they, that was kind of unique about this particular feast. They'd weigh these two loaves before the Lord. And there's all kinds of questions like, what do the two loaves stand for? And it's interesting. Um, first of all, what's, what's kind of fascinating to, to me about this, a lot of people taught and believed and tradition said that not only did the Feast of Pentecost kind of celebrate this in-gathering, this, this now, the summer harvest and all of that, but it also was commemorating, listen, the giving of the law, the giving of the law. When Moses came down off the mountain with two tablets, and, and a lot of Jewish thought is like, well, this is commemorating when, G, when Moses came down the two tablets. Here's kind of the problem with that is that, and I'm sure maybe they did remember that time. That's fine. But the, the two loaves of bread had leaven in them. And the law doesn't have sin in it. So there's something else, I think, going on here. Now, fast forward. How is this fulfilled? Guys, there's a New Testament fulfillment of this as well. What happened 50 days after the Passover, or 50 days after um, the first fruits in the New Testament, the Feast of Pentecost. And what was significant about the Feast of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? You guys, that's when the church was gathered together. 110 of them were in that upper room. And a sound like a mighty rushing wind came up in that place. Flames, that looked, they looked like fire, was on their heads. They began speaking out in other languages, praising God. A, a crowd gathers. They're, they're somewhere near the temple, you know, uh, gathering area, the, the steps, the courtyard there is what I was trying to say, and, and there's this gathering and everybody's saying, they're drunk, they're, something's wrong with those guys, and, and they're like, we're not drunk, it's nine in the morning, you know, this isn't, no, I was going to make a joke, but I won't, um, they say, we're not drunk, and then Peter steps out onto the veranda, that's how I envision it, and he, he preaches the gospel, and what happens, 3,000 souls come to faith in Jesus Christ and are baptized right then and there. Guys, Pentecost is fulfilled as uh, in Acts chapter 2, as the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? And guys, well, why is the two low significant? Because listen, the birth of the church brought together two things, Jew and Gentile. This is part of the mystery that Paul talks about of the church in Ephesians chapter 3 and other places, that Jew and Gentile with leaven, that is, we're sinners, we're not perfect, but we are brought together into one body, one entity called the church of Jesus Christ. Amen? So again, just on a, if you're just trying to keep track of things, what is Pentecost? Okay, it was this harvest, the two things. It signified also the giving of the law, but listen, for us, it signifies the birth of the church. Now, again, little side note, if indeed it did commemorate the giving of the two tablets of the law, do you guys remember what actually happened on that day? Moses had to come down early from the mountain because there was a ruckus down in the camp. And I don't usually use the word ruckus, but it just fits there. Ruckus. There was a ruckus. Sounded like war. They came down. He met Joshua halfway down. I think there's war. That's not war because that's techno music I hear. (laughs) Like... There was a party going on. They had the golden calf that was made. They're dancing around this thing naked. They're getting crazy. They're just going back to their Egyptian style of worship and just tagging God on it instead. And what did Moses do? He broke all the Ten Commandments at once. He threw them down on the ground, symbolizing, this is what you've just done. You just agreed to do all these things, and you've just broken them all. And he, as a kind of like a a visual, he throws them down and smashes them in front of them, but then he takes the golden calf that they're worshiping, grinds it into power, and makes them drink it. 
And then he says, who's on the Lord's side? And the Levites say, we are. They didn't participate in that. He said, okay, go kill your, your brothers. Everybody who participated. And they had to go through the camp and kill their relatives and their friends and their brothers who participated in that idol worship. On the day that the law was given, 3,000 people died. On the day that the Spirit came and the church was birthed, 3,000 people came to eternal life. To live by the law is death. To live by the Spirit is life. If you try to relate to God by virtue of the law, keeping the rules, or even after being a Christian, try to constantly win God's approval by keeping the law, it is death. But if you come by faith through grace and it's by the Spirit, it is life. Amen? Such a beautiful fulfillment. Let's keep moving. You guys are doing great. Verse 23. Now, before we get to verse 23, actually, no, let's go ahead. Verse 23. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak uh, to the people of Israel saying, in the seventh month, note that on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with a blast of trumpets, a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work and you shall present a food offering to the Lord. Um, here's what's significant, a couple of things, and, and this is where it's going to get down to the, I think, to some nitty-gritty application. After the Feast of Weeks or, or Pentecost, there's a long stretch, months go by, four or five months go by, to the seventh month. Then on the first day of the seventh month, I think it's uh, Rosh Hashanah, right? They blow these trumpets, like they're civil New Year, actually. They blow these trumpets. They do this trumpet blast, and it's like a day of solemn rest. Now, most people believe that that trumpet blast, that trumpet blast is to prepare them for the feast that's coming 10 days later, which is the Day of Atonement, and which we'll talk about in a moment. But just like the other feasts, this feast also has New Testament implications and symbolism. You see, in Numbers chapter 10, and, and again, Pastor Steve taught on this recently, so I don't feel a need to to hit on it too much, two silver trumpets were formed for the priest to blow. And they would blow these for certain occasions. They would blow them on the Sabbath, or excuse me, the, the first of the month. They would blow them um, to gather the congregation together. They would blow them to break camp. There was a certain signal they would give on the thing, and that meant break camp. We're leaving. We're moving on. Um, sometimes they would blow them as an alarm, you know, like the enemy's coming or whatever. Uh, but there was these two trumpets now, what's fascinating is, is that what these next few feasts speak of are things that in the New Testament actually haven't happened yet. See, the blowing of that trumpet, I believe, firmly speaks to us of what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that we who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord will not prevent those who have you know, gone to sleep before us, but with the blast of a trumpet sound, the dead in Christ will rise, and then we which are alive and remain will be, I totally butchered that quote, but at the trumpet blast, we who are alive and remain will be caught up, harpazo, snatched away, literally is what it means, to grasp eagerly for one's self is what harpazo means, and we will be taken up into the clouds, and it says, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Amen? That is called the doctrine of the rapture. It's different from the second coming. The second coming is when we're already with Jesus and we come back to earth with him. The rapture is when we're on earth and we go up into the clouds to meet him there. 
It's an upward going, not a downward coming. So this is the doctrine of the rapture. You can also look at 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 53, I think it is, right in there. It also, I believe, for Israel has a significant implication because at the end of the tribulation, and I don't mean to get into things that maybe you're not familiar with, but I know a lot are, after the rapture of the church, there's actually coming a very difficult time called the tribulation, seven years of God's judgment on earth. But in, in, in Matthew chapter 24, verse 31, interesting verse, he says, he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the earth to the other. And I believe that this also, as it relates to Israel, is significant. Because Israel, during that time, will turn to the Lord. And at the end of the tribulation, there's going to be a calling together of all of God's people of Israel, speaking of Israel, the elect there meaning Israel, to come together and will be his. And so all that to say is there's a, there's a lot of different things that, that signifies, but for us, the main thing that we're thinking of here is those trumpet blasts fully speak of the rapture of the church when the trumpet blows. Um, we can get into when and where and how. Those doctrines are wonderful to talk about. Just know this. At any given moment, the trumpet could blast and we could be out of here. Jesus taught the imminent, imminent return. Paul taught an imminent return. And by imminent, meaning we don't know and we should expect it at any time. And that's how Christians are to live. Well, I'll come back to that. I'm not trying to skip over that. I just want to keep moving. That's what the trumpet thing will signify. These are future yet events. Now, the Day of Atonement, we covered this in chapter 16 in great detail because chapter 16 looks at the Day of Atonement from the priest's perspective. This is more from the, just like the, 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 you know, like the regular garden variety Jewish person's perspective. Look at verse 26. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, now on the seventh day of this month, uh, of the seventh month, is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation. You will afflict yourselves, which literally can mean fast. Present a food offering to the Lord. You shall not do any work on that day. It is the day of atonement to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that day shall be cut off from his people. Whoever does any work on that day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It's a statute forever. Throughout your generations, in all your dwelling places, it shall be for you a Sabbath of solemn rest. You shall afflict yourselves on that ninth day of the, uh, on the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, you shall keep your Sabbath. We mentioned several weeks ago on the Day of Atonement that it is probably the holiest day for Israel because this is the one feast that was not celebratory. This is the one feast that lasted one day that was designed to be this idea of affliction. And they were to take that day and they were to fast. And they were to not work. And they were to, it was a solemn day. It was a serious day. Why? Because it was on that day that the sins of the nation 
would be dealt with at the temple. When the priest would take two goats, do you remember this? And one of the goats, well, actually, he would take an offering for himself first, but then he would take goats, and he would take one of them, they would lay their hands on that goat, and they would kill that goat, and it was dying in place of the, of the people for the sins of the people. They would take that blood in behind the veil, sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. He would go back out, they'd lay hands on the other goat, and they would send it away into the wilderness. Do you guys remember this? He was called the scapegoat, and what was being pictured there, by the way, is how Christ would come and not only forgive us of our sins, but forget our sins, send them as far as the east is from the west, amen? So there is a picture of fulfillment in Christ in that. But for us, again, as we're looking ahead at what this may signify in the New Testament as well, is that the emphasis here is affliction, solemn, seriousness, and then a sacrifice, and then rest. Why? I believe that the, the Day of Atonement, if you're keeping what's going on here, there's Passover, removal of sin, first fruits, resurrection, Pentecost, the rapture. But what's going to happen after the rapture? Revelation chapter 6 through 19, Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 7, calls it the Day of Jacob's Trouble. For some of you who are familiar with this, the, the 70th week of Daniel. See, the Bible predicts that there's a seven-year period coming where God is going to begin to pour out his judgment on an earth that has rejected Jesus. Now, as you read Revelation 16-19, what may blow your mind is that the things that are talked about as happening, they're in, symbol, in symbolism a lot of it, but symbolizing things that are real. Those things are starting to happen now. I'm not saying they're happening now, but they're happening in a way where you go, oh, I see that beginning to form up. I see that beginning to already happen. In other words, that I believe that time is coming soon. But it's going to be a horrific time in particular for the Jewish people. Zechariah, um, I don't have the address on me right now, um, forgive me, indicates that probably two-thirds of the Jewish nation will be wiped out. But that remnant that's left will come to faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 11, verse 25 and 26. Zechariah, chapter 12 and 13, they'll say, weeping. Oh, this, man, this got me today when I was thinking about it too. And they'll see Jesus with all of his scars, risen. And they'll say, where did you get those wounds? And they'll say, I got them in the house of my friends. The point is, it's a difficult hour for the world, but specifically for Israel but they're going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And guys, when we talk about the return of Jesus Christ, we're always like, yes, the return of Jesus Christ. But read chapter 19 of Revelation. The, the return of Jesus Christ starts very dark. Not for us, we'll be with him. But for those who are left on earth, because when Jesus Christ comes back, he's coming back to judge. And it starts with death, and it starts with blood, and it starts with a reckoning, and it starts with a heavy hand, a rod of iron, and then develops into the beauty of righteous rule and reign. But this Day of Atonement, I believe, prophetically speaks of that dark day of the tribulation leading up to the return of Christ. Lastly, the Feast of Booths, a.k.a. Um, what is it, a.k.a.? 
There it is. The Feast of Tabernacles, that's the word I was looking for. <clears throat> Let's read this together quick, and then, and then I'll go through it. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the 15th day of the seventh month, for seven days in the, is the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, to the Lord. On the day you shall be, it shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. Seven days you shall present food offering to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It's a solemn assembly. You shall not do any work. Now there's a little parenthetical couple of verses here uh, kind of speaking of all of this. He says, these are the appointed feasts of the Lord which you shall proclaim as, as times of holy convocation, holy gatherings. For presenting to the Lord food offerings, burnt offerings, grain offerings, sacrifices, drink offerings, each in its proper day, besides the Lord's Sabbath and besides the gifts and besides your vow offerings, besides your free will offerings. In essence, what he's saying there is these feasts are above and beyond what you usually do. Verse 39, on the 15th day of the seventh month, you shall have gathered in the produce of the land and you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day shall be a solemn rest and on the eighth day a solemn rest. And you shall take on the first day the, fir- the fruit of the splendid trees, branches of palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, willows um, of the brook and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall celebrate as a feast to the Lord for seven days in the year. It is a statute forever throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month. You shall dwell in booths. Look at, listen to this. You're going to dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. Thus Moses declared to the people of Israel the appointed feasts of the Lord. So this last feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, um, also called the Feast of Booths, also called, listen, this is interesting, the Feast of Ingathering, Exodus chapter 34, 22. This was the most celebratory feast of all of them. They would have this, it came right at, you know, after the Day of Atonement, but then they would have this, this week-long, okay, on the first day and the eighth day were Sabbaths, but in between that, it was a party. They were celebrating. They were to rejoice before the Lord. This is by far like the happiest of all of the, the feast put together. This one was like the, the grand one, super fun, seven days. Now, what did it speak of? You notice at the end, he basically says, look, here's what you're going to do. For seven days, you're going to live in a booth or a tabernacle. Why? to remind you that I brought you out of Egypt and through the wilderness. Amen? In other words, they had to camp out in their backyard in a tent or make a little lean-to with, you know, thatched palm branches or something. And they had to take their... Now think about these wonderful object lessons that God worked into his law. Why would they do that? So they would take their kids one week, you know, oh, it's all right, it's the Feast of Tabernacles, cool, oh, we're going camping in our backyard. I mean, think that you have like a six-year-old or a seven-year-old. How stoked would you be? Like, we get to sleep outside? Yes! And they, and they do this to this day. You sleep, you know, you go outside and you sleep out there. Why? Why are we doing this, Dad? I'm glad you asked, son. Let me tell you about how God provided for us when he took... You understand what God is doing here? He's building into this, like this built-in object lesson so that the kids would not forget the history and, and how God delivered them. It's just this wonderful, beautiful thing. But what does it speak of for us? Guys, this speaks of the most joyful, celebratory event yet to come. And it's called the millennial reign of Christ. 
Again, in my opinion, this is something we don't talk enough about as Christians. But this is what so many Old Testament prophecies have yet to be fulfilled, even New Testament prophecies. When you read about stuff like the wolf and the the lamb lying down together, when you talk about deserts becoming springs and, and the curse being reversed and the world being restored back to the way it's supposed to be, this is that time period. You see, after the church goes up to meet Christ in the air, and during that time, the tribulation, God's judgment is happening on the earth, there's coming a day, Revelation 19, where Jesus and us with him will return. He'll judge the nations. He'll separate the the sheep and the goats. And guys, you have to understand, there will be mortal people that survive the tribulation. And at that time, they will go into this literal, real thousand-year period on earth where Jesus himself will rule and reign from Jerusalem, the Bible indicates we will rule and reign with him, and the earth will be replenished, and life will be the way that God intended it to be with Jesus, by the way, in the White House, so to speak. Amen? No more elections, no more protests. No, it's going to be What you're longing for, guys, this is going to be the answer to millions of prayers that say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the fulfillment, the complete fulfillment of God's kingdom come. And whether you know it or not, this is what you're longing for. We don't understand at all how it's all going to be. But this is what we're longing for, when we can really be who we were created to be, when we will be able to experience, I mean, think about it, the world's going to be like this lush garden place with foliage and waterfalls and surf. Can you imagine such a place? Anyway, it's it's like Hawaii all over the world. I don't know. But it's going to be, I mean, if nature is so awesome right now, think about what it's going to be like when it's not tainted with the curse of the fall. We can't. We can't. It doesn't even enter in our mind the things that it's going to be like. It's like trying to explain Disneyland to a four-year-old who's never been there, and you're like, and there's this, these like rides, a ride, what's a ride? It's just a thing. It's, you're going to love it. And, and then there's like these things, and, and I feel like that's what the Bible is for us. It's like God trying to describe heaven or the millennial reign of Christ. He's like, you guys, it's going to be great. There's going to be like, just forget it. You'll see when you get here. that's why I think Paul, when he actually died and went to heaven and came back, he said, it would be a a crime for me to try to tell you of the things that I saw. Because I can't even, there's not words to describe. We have no idea what it's going to be like, and, and that's what's waiting for us. But I love this, you guys. This is just what's been just tweaking my brain, thinking about this. God didn't have to do this, but he gave us the calendar. He gave us the calendar. The the redemptive plan for mankind from the cross and its resurrection and the day of Pentecost and the rapture and the tribulation and the second coming and the millennial reign of Christ. And it's all in one chapter right there. Amazing. Think about calendars. They only work if you reference them, right? (laughs) Or you miss the event, so to speak. Guys, notifications are going off right now. There's some stuff that's coming up on the calendar quick. You know, uh, just in closing, in closing-ish, I want you to notice that those last three feasts all happened in the seventh month. Seven is a significant number in the Bible because seven speaks of completion. And in those last three feasts, we see a completion 
of God's program. And they come pretty quickly on top of each other. And again, think back to the first feasts, which were in the spring and summer, Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, weeks. But then there was this long gap. But then on the seventh month, there's another cluster, rapture, tribulation, second coming, millennial reign. The point I'm trying to make is we are living in between that fourth feast and the fifth feast, that, that spring feast and the fall feast. Does that make sense? That gap that we're living in is called the, the age of grace. Now, what fascinated me real quickly, verse 22, remember I told you to put a little mental bookmark there? This is right after the feast of Pentecost. There's this verse thrown in there. You shall reap the harvest of your land, and you shall not reap the, the field right up to the edge. You know, he says, don't round the corner, save some. And as I was reading that, I was like, that's an interesting, I mean, we've talked about that already. Why did he throw that in there? It's right as it's talking about Pentecost and that harvest and all of that. But then he says, oh, by the way, when you're doing your harvest, don't forget, you know, don't round the corners, take care of the poor. But it kind of dawned on me, like, it's at the end of that feast where there's this long gap before the next feast, trumpets, when the trumpet comes, i.e. the rapture. What are we supposed to be doing for those four months, so to speak? What were they doing? They were working the harvest. You guys understand what I'm saying? See, I believe that seven month, so to speak, that completion is coming. I believe that trumpet's about to be blasted. I really do. I think God's got, or, you know, whoever's going to blow that humdinger, their lips are on it, ready, pull, pulling in a breath right now. I believe that trumpet blast could come and we could be out of here. But what do we do in the meantime? We need to work the harvest. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And I don't think the harvest has ever been as plentiful as it is right now. With the craziness of this world, are you kidding me? You guys, I'm having a hard time dealing with it, and I'm a Christian and know what's going on. I can't imagine trying to navigate this thing, not knowing Christ and not knowing how the story ends and just going with the flow of what the world's doing right now. Guys, people need Jesus and are hungry for Jesus. And I believe that the harvest is white and ready and ripe. And Jesus might say to the church tonight, the harvest is plentiful, but there's just not enough workers. You know, when we talk about the rapture, there's two dangers. Unfortunately, in mainstream Christianity, hear me, in mainstream Christianity right now, the idea of a literal rapture is mocked. It's uneducated. If you believe in the simple rapture of the church before the tribulation comes out, most of mainline Christianity thinks that that's silly. Or, I mean, within our own tribe, you know, we're like, they belittle that. Peter said that would happen, by the way. He said, in the end time, scoffers will come. will say, where's the coming of your Lord? And Jesus warned about a mentality that would say, ah, the rapture, the coming of Jesus. Read Luke 12. He, he warns about that, a mentality of when you don't live with that imminent return of Christ right there in your peripheral view, you can get real carnal real quick. You can just start living for this world. You can get all tangled up into things of this life and making money and doing the things that are not necessarily bad, but they're just taking you away from the main things and the big things and the important things. And there's a danger of dismissing this idea of the rapture. We need to know that it's coming. Amen? We just need to know that. But there's another danger, and it's for those of us who do believe in the rapture. 
And this is just my opinions. You can take this and you can take it or leave it. But I can also see for those of us like myself, who am a full-on pre-trib, you know, pre-millennial, for those guys, that, if you know the terms, I believe the rapture could happen any minute I, I, for all the biblical reasons. And that's good, and that's right. And we're all about our prophecy updates and Middle East updates. And, that, and I get them all, and I look at them, and I read them. But listen, there can be something that can happen in us that I'm, I'm, I'm noticing that we got to be very careful about. And that is this. Don't circle the wagons. There can be this mentality of like, it's just getting so bad and I just can't wait for Jesus to come back so let's just have our holy huddle and have church and, and know every little last possible detail of Bible prophecy. While the harvest is rotting on the vine. We gotta be careful. We should believe he's coming tonight but we gotta work and plant and go after it like we don't know, like it could be another 30 years and we gotta get after it. Amen? Because if we're not careful, we can just kind of do this detached thing and be like, well, we're good. I'm excited about rapture as much as the next guy. We just got to be careful not to have that mentality of like, well, I just want to check out, just want to get out of here and just be done with all of this. We all do. But the harvest is plentiful. Four things. Number one, we need to pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send workers out into the field. I, need, I believe as a church we need to step up prayer, specific prayer. Prayer for our neighbors, prayer for our friends, prayer for our community. The prayer for the people that are in your sphere of influence that they would come to know Jesus Christ and prayer that God would open up opportunities for you to engage them, which is number two, engage. <laughs> we need to engage the lostness of the world. In any way that the Lord opens a door for you, that might be inviting a neighbor over for dinner. It might be, um, you know, just talking to your coworker. But it's not enough just to be a nice person and, and be good. We need to actually engage lost people, realizing they're lost, just like somebody engaged us when we were lost. And somehow, prayerfully, lovingly, in a friendly way, we need to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to pray. We need to engage. We need to give. I'm convinced that right now more than ever when jobs are, are, are getting slashed and businesses are going under, we need to be committed to partnering and giving to those ministries and those missionaries that God has put on your heart to give to. Because we all, no matter who we are, are to be involved in the Great Commission in some way, in our own sphere and in the sphere of getting it out there. And then also, lastly, we need to go. Pray, engage, give, and go. If God is putting on your heart to go, and that can mean a number of different things. We're, I'm not saying we all need to leave the island or leave the country, but what I'm saying is we need to have a go mentality of when God says go, whether it's a go across the street or go across the world, we just do it. Amen? Why? Because Jesus is coming soon. The, the calendar has been set notifications are popping up left and right. The event is about to happen. It doesn't mean we check out. I believe now it's time to check in and actually be about the Father's business. Amen? I went long, but it's a long chapter. Dude, I did 44 verses. Get off me, okay? Let's all stand together. Before we go our way, can we do this? Can we bow our heads to not lose the moment? 
because the Holy Spirit may have been speaking to you. If you're like me, I hear things like that, and I go, yes, but then I say, but how does that work out? And that's where you gotta get alone with Jesus. That's where this is personal between you and him, and you gotta say, Lord, how do I pray for my neighbors? How do I pray for the country? Not talk about prayer, but actually do it. How do I actually engage with my coworker? Will you set up divine appointments for me? God, would you, who would you have me to give to? Would you have me to go? Who's going that I can, you know, think, that's how we gotta think. And you have the Holy Spirit, and he wants to direct you and personally in your life and however that plays out. But let's just bow our hearts for a moment and pray that in. Would you just take a moment to pray that yourself? God, how does this all apply to me? Just go ahead. In your own words, to God, just talk to him for a moment. It's all very surreal, God, when we think about it. Could this really be happening? Well, you've already proved in the previous feast that you fulfilled them to the T and you're about to fulfill the other ones. We know you're coming back. We see all the signs. I mean, they're coming quick. They're coming fast. And Lord, I pray that we would believe with all of our heart that you're coming in the clouds soon. But I pray it would motivate us to prayer and engaging into the, the harvest. Would you show each one of us what that looks like? Lord, like tonight, like tomorrow, when we go about our day, show us how to be involved in the harvest until you come. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Eyes to the sky. If we don't get raptured, we'll be here again next Wednesday. But uh, look up. He's coming soon. Be about the harvest. God bless you guys.